If you're new with us, welcome to Matthew. Um, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this study. I hope that even if you're jumping in with us in chapter 11, that you will be blessed through this, uh, that you'll be able to get acclimated quickly to what's going on here. We take the scriptures very seriously simply because they're the living word of God given to us. Um, we desperately want to hear God speak to us, um, give us a word, and this is his word. And so we study it as such. And his spirit uses this word to communicate directly to our hearts. And so if you're new, we are in the book of Matthew. We're looking at Matthew's account of the gospel. He's helping prove. Uh, his goal would be to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, this has been just such a rich study to this point. Um, recently, I was on the phone with my brother, Ian McConnell, my brother in Christ, uh, pastor of Grace Bible Church in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia. And uh, he has been faithfully serving there similar time span to our time here at Grace Church, our life at Grace Church. They replanted Grace Bible Church. It had been a longstanding ministry that had dwindled down to nothing. He came in there and uh, they replanted the church and having a thriving ministry. In that discussion on the phone, we were encouraging each other and we were talking about preaching philosophy and he was in the book of Jonah and I asked him how many messages he was going to teach from Jonah. And he said, well, I'm doing eight and I kind of uh, was surprised by the number of messages in Jonah. And because I studied under uh, John MacArthur at Masters and because Ian didn't, uh, he thought that the reason I was saying that was because I thought there should be a lot more teaching from Jonah. Actually, I was thinking there should be less. Uh, I've actually worked through Jonah and had four messages out of Jonah. And so we had this big laughing time. And uh, he said, you have no grounds to tell me to teach less. He said, I'm on your website right now. And you've done nothing but Matthew. He said, this is unbelievable. And uh, he said, people are going to start gauging when in Matthew they came to the church. Uh, he said, what else are you doing? So... I understand that sentiment, and I took it on the chin. I doled out some to him because I know him too, but uh, I did take it on the chin, and today I am guilty as charged uh, because what we're doing at the end of chapter 11 is taking one sermon with three main headings, and we're making it three sermons with one main heading apiece, okay? That's what we're doing, and uh, I am doing that this morning. Last week, we looked at the first main heading of this section. This week, we're going to look at the second one. Next week, we're going to look at the third one, and uh, I think, I trust, I've been praying that God would not um, leave us confused because of the division of these paragraphs. I really pray that God would bring continuity and give us understanding at a greater depth because we've divided this up. So really, I have an intentional, intentional uh, purpose behind each one of these texts, and uh, my job is to explain the Bible to you. That's what I'm here to do, uh, to proclaim it, to tell you what it says, and to allow the Holy Spirit to deal with it in your life and, and to come alongside and to be a blessing and an encouragement any way that I can. So as pastor for preaching, my prayer each week is, Lord, how can I accurately communicate this in a way that will touch the lives of those who hear it? And I hope that dividing this up will do that better than if we didn't divide this up. This is just such rich theological material here that I didn't want to leave it to one sermon, which would have been a, probably about three hours long. So you can be happy that we're not doing that um, if you're thinking about time. The struggle with dividing up texts like this at the end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 20 and really to verse 30, 
the last paragraphs, those last paragraphs are really one whole. They're, they're very much together. Jesus is addressing one group. It's very much in Matthew's mind. He's combining that last paragraph to make a, a closing point. And the problem is when we divide those up into each individual text for our study time together here, the, 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 the struggle is to keep continuity. I mean, we start to lose grip with where we are, not just in Matthew chapter 11, but where we are in the book of Matthew. And so if we slow down too much, we're basically just doing a textual study. And I, I really want this to be something where you grasp the message of the gospel of Matthew. So I hope that today... We can keep the continuity together. If you're new with us, we can connect you to the context, what's happening around this paragraph, and uh, bring you into this so that we not only get the depth of what is here, but we connect it to the whole. Um, Matthew has been thematic in the way he's addressed this gospel writing, and we've gone through this, but each and every section of the book of Matthew has a theme or has a a point to it, a theological emphasis, something that Matthew is using to point to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So in the very beginning, we looked at the front end of Jesus' life, up to his birth, through his birth. His genealogy, the first chapter, is all about Matthew giving us the prophetic fulfillment that is found in Jesus Christ. He's the one who was promised. He's the one who would come. Then we entered into chapter 5 and we went through Matthew chapter 7 and we saw Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and laying out the groundwork for his kingdom. So in his baptism in chapter 3, we saw him declared as the very son of God. He is the king of the kingdom. In chapter 4, he's tempted. And in chapter 5, having established his role as king, Matthew then proceeds to let the king speak to us. And so we get the manifesto of the king. Explaining the kingdom. Chapter 8 through chapter 9, we found Jesus miraculously working. And so Matthew turns the corner and proves or validates the claim of the Messiah King through his activities. Picking up in chapter 10, we saw the kingdom mission described. Jesus explains to his disciples what it will be like and what they should expect in the mission for their king. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian... You're a follower of Christ. That means you live life under the kingship, the reign of Jesus. And that has implications on everyday life. And chapter 10 is helping you understand and expect the right implications. Chapter 11, we find another transition in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples about the kingdom mission, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now we find John in prison doubting Christ. And what begins at the front end of chapter 11 and carries us through chapter 12, is the rising opposition to Jesus as Messiah. Now Matthew's very intentional here, because the opposition to Jesus as Messiah gets a swift response from Jesus. And that response should seal, should close in our minds his messianic role, his answers to those who would doubt him, oppose him, stand directly against him, his answers are to help solidify our confidence that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one, the one who would bring salvation. At the conclusion of both chapter 11 and chapter 12, we find Jesus speaking to the gospel, dealing with those who interact with him. 
What do we do with people who relate to Jesus? How should we see them? How should we understand them? What is true in these scenarios? So in verse number 20 last week, we saw the first of these three main headings that close out chapter 11. The indifferent ones, those who connect to Jesus and are indifferent, just really doesn't make any impact on them. They might even give some verbal testimony to believing it. They might have some intellectual knowledge about Jesus, but there's no effect on their lives. If there is no repentance and faith, they're indifferent. And Jesus says that they are in danger based upon their amount of revelation. They are in danger of judgment. They will face condemnation. That's the message of verses 20 to 24. Those cities in Galilee, they had more revelation than the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. And because they had more revelation in the person of Jesus Christ doing his miraculous deeds in their communities, they were under stricter accountability before God for their rejection, which was masked by indifference. The implication is that today, those who are indifferent to Christ with the full revelation of God given, the preserved word presented and preserved for us, once this has been handed down, the accountability level is as high as it will ever be. And in the Western world, where we have the Bible in our language, and it has been clearly preached and communicated for centuries, the accountability level is unbelievably high for those who would reject Christ through indifference, through being unmoved by Him. But the second group of people that we find in verses 25 down through verse 28, or verse 27 rather, and we'll study this group today, this second major heading, is the chosen ones. If the indifferent ones will receive condemnation, the chosen ones will receive revelation. So those whom God has chosen will receive revelation, verse 25 through 27. And the third main heading of this one sermon divided into three is the desperate ones found in verse 28 through 30. The desperate ones will receive spiritual rest. So Jesus is wrapping up this early opposition to his kingdom mission. Found in the doubt, the skepticism of John the Baptist in prison. Mirrored by the critical spirit, the self-righteousness of the religious leaders of the day and the people in the crowd who followed them. And Jesus cast out these woes. He clearly tells these cities that had heard him had seen him, and had watched him do miracles. Tells them they're condemned. He moves from those people to communicate what we find in verse number 25. And this morning, we'll see that the chosen ones receive revelation. What's the big idea? What's the, what's the overarching theme? What would be one sentence that would put this in a package for us? I think this at least is a, an attempt. The sovereign choice of God is the invisible deciding factor in the revelation of Jesus Christ to sinners. The sovereign choice of God is the invisible deciding factor in the revelation of Jesus Christ to sinners. When you received Christ, when your eyes were opened to Christ, and you saw His glory, you saw His sacrifice at the cross, you saw His majesty. When that happened, the invisible deciding factor in you experiencing the revelation of Jesus Christ 
was God's sovereign choice. It was his prerogative. That's what we find in verses 25 through 27. Let's read these together and we'll examine this truth statement that the chosen will receive spiritual revelation. Verse 25. Let's read verse 20. We'll read all the way through 30 and just put this in a package to try to hold it together. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will or such was what brought you pleasure. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. These are the words of God. Verse 30, for, your yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that concludes this section, and it concludes this portion where Jesus deals with that early opposition and it is the very word of god okay the chosen will receive revelation if the indifferent will receive condemnation the chosen ones will receive revelation and ultimately next week we'll see that the desperate ones will receive rest in verse number 25 jesus prays don't miss that jesus prays Uh, this is one of those mysteries of the incarnation The second person of the Trinity, one God, three persons beyond the finite mind that we've been given. The perfect triune God, the eternal second person of that Trinity, prays to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, Matthew begins this by saying at that time, connecting us back to verses 20 to 24. In fact, Luke's account, the parallel account in Luke's gospel, connects these two events as well. Jesus says condemnation is coming if you are indifferent. If you don't respond with repentance to the revelation of Jesus Christ, you will be judged. And you will be judged strictly based upon the accountability you have because of the revelation you enjoy. And at that time, right at that moment, in that context, Jesus turns to prayer. It's fascinating what he prays. Here is Jesus, the Son, speaking to the Father, and he speaks with gratitude. 
He's happy about something. He's thankful about something. And so we see Jesus grateful for sovereign grace. That's what is clearly on the heart of our Lord. And we'll prove that from this text. The chosen ones will receive revelation. And that is true because of what Jesus prays. He says, I thank you, Father. Jesus' gratitude is grounded in what he incorruptibly knows is true about the Father. Okay, don't miss this. What we're looking at here is Jesus' theology. I love to read theology. I I enjoy theology. I know that we're swimming upstream in teaching theology and thinking theology in the current culture in which we live. But I love theology. And one of my favorite theological works is a a book by Wayne Grudem, who's a Systematic theology professor at Phoenix Theological Seminary. Wayne Grudem has written a systematic theology. All that means is he's taken theological headings and he's tried to give us cover to cover what the Bible says about those theological headings. I love to read Grudem. I love to read him because at the end of Grudem's chapters, he has a hymn for you to sing or read and he has thoughts or questions for you to consider meditating on the truth and how it affects you. That's wonderful because theology always affects life. So I love reading theology, but this morning we are not reading Grudem's systematic theology. What we're going to talk about this morning is the theology of Jesus. It's what the second person of the Trinity knows to be true about God. So at the outset, if right away the words the chosen ones will receive spiritual revelation is problematic to you, Let it be known that I believe that's true because of what Jesus knows about God. So Jesus says, I thank you, Father. And now he's going to give us theology. Okay, here's our theological lesson for this morning from the seminary of Jesus Christ. Where all are welcome. Here's what he says. I thank you, Father, notice verse 25, Lord of heaven and earth. Theological point number one, Jesus confirms and acknowledges and confesses that the Father is Lord over everything. That's what heaven and earth stands for. It is all-encompassing. He is the one who reigns. He is the one who directs. He's the one who sets in order and sets in motion. He's the master of everything. So Jesus confesses theologically, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus doesn't stop with that theological point. He moves quickly then to how that lordship applies to the current scenario. So he's thankful that Jesus is in charge of everything. And maybe this morning we're thankful at times for that, too. We're thankful when trials come in our lives. That God is Lord of heaven and earth. We can rest in his sovereign control. We're thankful when things are going well and we're receiving blessings and our lives seem to be cruising right along. That he's Lord of heaven and earth. It's easy to sing praises to his lordship. But Jesus has a specific scenario in which the lordship of the Father is being gratefully remembered. It's a specific scenario, and we find it in the second half of verse number 25. That 
Father, here's how your lordship plays out. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. All right. Jesus is thankful for God's sovereign selection in Revelation. That's what grips the heart of our Lord Jesus in gratitude in this passage. He is thankful that the chosen ones will receive spiritual revelation. That is his theological understanding. That is what he knows to be true about the Father. And it grips his heart with gratitude. Now, this passage causes our minds problems. Because this passage says that the Father hides true things from certain people. And he reveals true things to other people. That's that's problematic to us. But it's problematic probably on the first level because we're not thinking of people correctly. You see, the Father is not hiding things from neutral beings who are all on the same level and they're all innocent and set out as neutral. They have no information. It's a clean slate. And and He's just withholding the information that they desperately need and desire to have. See, what Jesus is grateful for is that in God's sovereign plan, He hides the truth from those who are wise and understanding. That's, That's a helpful Helpful criterion by which to look at this gratitude from our Lord. He has hidden not from a neutral playing field, but from a wicked generation, from a wicked humanity, and in particular, those who consider themselves wise or understanding. In other words, God has chosen in his plan that he will not reveal the truth of Jesus Christ. He will not reveal the person and the work of Christ savingly, To those who are wise in their own eyes. Who are understanding in their own assessment. To those whose hearts have been hardened. By their own arrogance. He will not. In other words, the woe that is declared against Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Is directly connected to the sovereign choice of God. In keeping revelation from them. So, The Bible could be read in your presence, but unless the sovereign God of heaven gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, that revelation will not come. He is hiding from those who hate him. Understand Romans chapter 3 paints a picture of humanity as a whole, which makes God's hiding a just and righteous activity on his part. Romans chapter 3, no need to turn there, just listen. Here's what verse 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. We go back to this text a lot. None is righteous, no, not one. We know that one. But it goes on to say, no one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are the people that have had the revelation withheld from them. It is hidden from them. 
They cannot see who Jesus is, though he is doing his mighty works right in front of their house. They can't see it. And our Savior is grateful that the sovereign God of heaven has chosen to hide the truth from those who consider themselves to be wise and understanding in this in this world. We've read this just recently. Flip over to 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible handy there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We won't read this whole section, but just give you a little taste of what we read last week for our scripture reading. Verse number 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, for the word of the cross is is ridiculous. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, in God's plan, he goes on to say through verse 31. He has made the wisdom of this world, those who would consider themselves wise and understanding to be fools eternally. The chosen ones will receive spiritual revelation. The Lord of heaven and earth hides the truth from some and reveals it to others. Now notice the others that have the revelation of Jesus Christ come to them. And revealed it in the last phrase of verse number 25. And revealed them, that is, these truths of the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the messianic place of Christ. And revealed those truths to little children. Now, Matthew uses little children a lot, and least ones and little ones. He uses those kinds of words and descriptions a lot. It's one of the key things that you'll find if you read and reread Matthew. And he is always differentiating between those who would consider themselves put together adults, mature in this world, and those who would consider themselves desperate, little children, entirely dependent, without their own capabilities. Those are the ones who have received revelation. This is no mystery, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, at the very front end of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who are at the end of themselves, who find their dependence entirely in someone else's help, little children. The picture here is of an infant. This translation really doesn't even do it justice. It is utter dependency. These are the ones who have received the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' point is not that these categories demand the choice of God. It is not that God has looked at humanity and said, well, that one is proud and this one is humble, so I'll save the humble one and I'll reject the proud one. It's that apart from any grace of God, we all fit into the wise and understanding and only God's gracious work crushes us and brings us to the place where as little children we are utterly dependent on the work of Jesus Christ in salvation. This is counterintuitive. But the ones who are nothings will be somethings in the kingdom of God. The ones who are little children will be exalted in glorification. And those who were somebodies, 
who considered themselves to be established and mature in this life will be brought to nothing. They'll be made to look foolish for eternity. Jesus concludes this first concept, this first step of gratitude in his prayer in verse number 26. He says, truly, or yes, or even so, Father. And now he describes how this took place. For such was your gracious will. For such was your gracious will. If you have an old King James this morning, it says, for so it seemed good in thy sight. You have New American Standard, it says, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. In the NIV, it says, for this was your good pleasure. The concept is all the same. This was the gracious plan of God according to his own pleasure. What God was pleased by, he did. And what he did was he hid the truth from some and he revealed it to others according to his sovereign choice. If you want to see this in a more pronounced and forthright text, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 and read a text that maybe this morning we need to reassess our first impression of what was happening when we were brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. The indifferent ones will receive condemnation. The chosen ones will receive revelation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 begins this glorious recounting of our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predetermined, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Not according to his assessment of us, but according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in other words, what Ephesians 1 clearly communicates, Matthew recounts Jesus affirming it was according to the gracious will. It was according to the good pleasure, what looked good in the eyes of the father. To hide the truth from some. Those who were wise and understanding. And to reveal it to those who were as infants as little children. Now in direct connection to verses 20 through 24 in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is grateful for the sovereign plan of the father. 
who only revealed the gospel to those whom he chooses, the little children rather than the wise and understanding. So, in other words, Jesus says, listen up, you cities, you are condemned. You will spend an eternity apart from Christ because you have been indifferent in the presence of Christ. And Father, I thank you that you have hidden the truth from them and revealed it to little children. That, that is the continuity with which Jesus holds theologically the responsibility, the accountability of sinners to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel and the sovereign plan of God in the salvation of sinners. This morning, what we find for our minds and what troubles us about this is that we ask this question, is God fair in such a sovereign selection? Is God fair to hide things from certain individuals and to reveal them to others now that's the question that troubles us is jesus theology all messed up no is this fair for god to do this and the answer is no it's not fair it's not fair it's not fair but only so much as he chooses to reveal christ Is it not fair? You see, the revelation of Jesus Christ, saving revelation, that is the awareness of who Christ is and what he has accomplished and eyes to see it and ears to hear the message and a heart to believe the truth about Christ is not fair. It's not fair. The only individual who has a claim to say, Father, what you've chosen is not fair is Jesus Christ. Because he got our punishment. Sinful humanity has no rights to the revelation of Jesus Christ. They have no rights to eyes that can see. They have no demands for ears that can hear. They have no privilege that they can demand to have a heart that believes. Hidden information from the wicked enemies of God is entirely just and fair. It is only His revelation that is unfair. It's your salvation that wasn't fair. He took your punishment and He put it on His perfect Son. That's the injustice of the gospel. Not the other way around. To flip that on its head is to say that humanity deserves to see Christ. That is categorically anti-scriptural. We're the enemies of God because we are the descendants of Adam. And in sin we rebel at every opportunity and our nature is fully corrupted by sin. In our course, we are not groping for God. We're not looking for God. It's not as if we're running towards God and he slams the gates of heaven shut. He goes, "Uh uh-uh, you don't get to come in. That's not the picture. The picture of scripture is we are running as hard and as fast as we can away from God. We hate him. We're running and we're cursing. We're running and we're spitting over our shoulder, hoping to hit God. And he plucks some and he reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what brings him the glory. Is this fair? No. But it's our salvation that's the part that isn't fair. And it is our salvation that is the part that preserves for God all of the glory for his gracious will. And choosing to reveal to those who are like desperate children and to hide from those who are arrogant enemies of his name.
Now Jesus goes on in verse number 27 to close out this second point of three in these weeks. The indifferent ones will receive condemnation. The chosen ones will receive revelation. We find again in verse number 27, Jesus changing his direction, no longer praying, but speaking a declaration to those that could hear him. We find the big idea once again that the sovereign choice of God is the invisible deciding factor in the revelation of Jesus Christ to sinners. Verse number 27 says, all things, this is Jesus speaking, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Everything is mine. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, that is the Father. Okay? Don't miss the the weightiness of verse number 27. All things have been handed over. Jesus is the sole recipient of all delegated authority. Everything has been committed to or delivered over to Jesus. This is what we find at the end of Matthew, which who knows when we'll find ourselves there. But in the Great Commission, we find this pronouncement. Jesus has received everything from the Father. It's been delegated to the Son. This is true in Philippians chapter 2. Because the Son took upon Himself the humble position of human being, the God-man, and suffered death for sinners, even the death of the cross. He has now been highly exalted in His resurrection that at the name of Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He's Lord. That is, that He's Master. So the delegated sovereign authority rests in Jesus, the Messiah. So He's grateful for the sovereign choice of the Father, but He's the delegated vehicle of the sovereign authority of the Father. And this is in direct relation to the rejection of the cities. Don't miss the context. The implication to the crowd listening to Jesus was quite obvious. Jesus was claiming that He and the Father, Yahweh God, the covenant God of Israel, they were one and the same. They were connected inseparably. They alone know each other. This is why Jesus was repeatedly nearly assassinated. Because the Jewish mind understood what he was claiming. This is exactly why Matthew has recorded it for us. The sovereign grace of God granted authority to the Son to carry out the sovereign work. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now notice verse 27. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And we, we read that and we just kind of go, well, that's, that's kind of weird. Because don't, don't we know the Son? And can you imagine the people listening to Him? How about His family? They're sitting there. They've known Jesus since He was born. His brothers and His mother were always on the outskirts, unbelieving. And they're going, we know you. We know who you are. And Jesus is saying, the only one who knows me is the Father, Yahweh of heaven. And I am the only one who knows him. The key here is really found in the word that Jesus uses to describe knowledge. The Greek language has this really cool ability. 
They could put a, a front end on a word and basically make the word deeper than the generic use of that word. So I don't ever tell, I try never to, to use Greek language. I can't say I never because I'm about to do it. But they use the word epi at the front of a word for knowledge and deepen the understanding. So epi-knowledge is quite a bit different than just saying knowledge or I know someone. I epi-know them is to say I experientially and relationally, I know them. All right? This is not hard for us. You've met somebody or known of somebody who is important. And you met some, somehow you met a person who said, I know the important person. And right away, you assumed that there was no epi on that. And you said to them, oh, really, how do you know them? And you waited to hear that the way that they knew them was that their cousin's brother's wife um, had had dinner at the same table as that individual. And so they, they know them. And you're just thinking, yeah, yeah, I know the people on my baseball cards too, all right? Um, I know their stats. I know how tall they are. Oh, yeah, I know them. Six foot one, 215. That's no epi knowledge. That's saying, I know someone, but I, I don't know them. When I was a kid, I, I had the distinct, I was going to say privilege. It was a privilege in God's grace, but at the time I didn't consider it such. I had my dad and my mom both involved in my life in school all the way through. My dad was the president of the school, and my mom was a teacher at the school. Those things panned out poorly occasionally. Um, you can only imagine uh, how poorly. But kids in that school would say, uh, I know Pastor Bailey. I know him. Because he was around, he was the leader of the school, he did chapels, he did whatever. I know Pastor Bailey. But see, I could say, no, I know Pastor Bailey. Like, I know him. I fish with him. I take trips with him. I see him when he's angry. I see him when he's praying. I, I'm, I know him. Jesus says here, I alone epi know the Father, and the Father is the only one who epi knows me. We are, we are the only ones who have that relationship to each other. And he's got a reason for saying that. He's thanked the sovereign father for his choice. And now he proclaims that the delegated authority has been passed from the father to the son because of that relationship. Because you see at the end of verse number 27, and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So it is the Son's prerogative to make known the glory of the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father and no one knows the Father except through Him. John fourteen six. This is His declaration of His messianic authority as sovereign Lord of heaven and earth given to Him by the Father in the mysterious Relationship of the Trinity. This is powerful, powerful information. John, this is very uh, John-like. Johannian is the way the commentators would say it. In John chapter 1, we find John describing what is probably the most familiar text regarding this reality that Jesus is claiming. Verse number 14 of John chapter 1 and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All right. John is proclaiming the very truth that his Lord proclaimed here after the pronouncement of judgment against the indifferent cities of Galilee. Now, how is it that Jesus is holding up? At one, at one point, he is condemning the accountable sinners who reject him. At the other point, he is praising the sovereign choice of God who reveals. And you see, this morning, theologically, that causes problems. We desperately want to go to one side or the other. We really do. We want to say, man is responsible for salvation. Man has to repent. Man has to believe. It's, it's about man. He gets the final choice. It's, it's your choice. It's up to you. It's all about man. What about God's sovereign choice? It's all about man. Now, I said it's all about man, and I'm going to read the verses, verses 20 to 24. And then we have others who are on the other side. It's all about God. It's all about his choice. It's all about what he chooses to reveal and what he doesn't choose to reveal. And the, the difficulty that we find is that the scriptures just, they hold both. And if you let go of either end of the rope, you have misunderstood the gospel. It is all God. It is all his initiation. It is all his work. And man is ultimately accountable for his responsibility for choosing Christ or rejecting Christ. So you have two ends of the same spectrum. And they're held in tension for us in this text from our Lord Jesus and in many of the texts of our Bible. Jesus' balance mirrored that balance of Scripture. He could simultaneously denounce the cities that did not repent and praise the God who does not reveal. For God's sovereignty and election is not mitigated by man's stubbornness and sin, while man's responsibility is in no way diminished by God's good pleasure that sovereignly reveals and conceals. All right? That's a, that's a mouthful from Don Carson, our faithful friend in Matthew. What Dr. Carson is saying is that the responsibility of man is in no way set aside because God sovereignly chooses. Man is accountable before God because he is created. He is a created being. He is a sinful created being who is accountable under the holy God of heaven. He is accountable. He's responsible. That doesn't change. It is inherent in our being. We are created, therefore we're accountable to our creator. And God's sovereign choice in no way wipes that off. So if you're here this morning and you are a rejecter of Jesus Christ, you will stand before a judgment and you will be condemned for your rejection, for your refusal to repent and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And it will be the just penalty of God for your sinful choice. And if you're here this morning and your eyes have been opened to the truth and you have heard the gospel and your heart has responded in faith and repentance, it is because your sovereign father chose to reveal it to you. You don't get any of the glory. You believed. You love him because he first loved you. You are responsible. He is sovereign. Don't let go of the rope. 
Jesus doesn't. This is his theological perspective, and it must be ours. The sovereign choice of God is the invisible deciding factor in the revelation of Jesus Christ to sinners. All right, now what does that mean for us? We're almost finished. What does that mean for you and I this morning? If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever and your heart is being drawn to Christ, you're being drawn by the weight of your sin, the guilt of your sin to Jesus Christ as the substitute for that sin at the cross and you turn from your own righteous way, from your own effort, from your wickedness and you pursue Christ by faith, you believe you will be saved. That is the the message of the gospel. In fact, next week we're going to see that the desperate ones will receive rest. Jesus says, come to me if you're burdened. And this morning, if you are burdened by the weight and the guilt of your sin, it is rightly so. Respond in faith. Come to Christ. Believe. Call out and cry out to God for forgiveness. And he will grant it. Believer, you're here this morning. It is critical for us to understand that God is the one behind our salvation. Let's just take this at the personal level first. We should worship God appropriately because of the theology given to us this morning. If we need to kind of go back and rewind, go backwards, rethink what happened when we came to Christ, it is appropriate for us to worship in a new understanding that it was God who had chosen to reveal us, reveal Christ to us. It was God who had chosen to open our eyes. It was God who had chosen to open our ears. It was God who did this. So that at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, it could be true of us that no one boasts except in the Lord. It's all for Him. He did it. I simply responded to His work. Even that was his gracious act upon me. Your salvation, believer, is nothing short of the gracious, eternal plan of God to reveal the glory of the Son to you, humbling you to radical repentance and childlike, infant-like dependence and faith. Secondly, beyond the personal aspect of worshiping Christ appropriately and submitting to him appropriately, which we'll talk about lastly. Secondly, This needs to be an encouragement for us in evangelism. The sovereignty of God's electing purposes is to be a motivation and a freeing reality for us as those on the kingdom mission. When you are taking the gospel to an unbelieving individual and you are speaking the truth of the gospel to them, your responsibility in that moment before your king is to clearly articulate the truth to them and rest that he will appropriate the effect of the gospel on that heart. It is not your job to bring someone to conversion. You can't do that. Be freed with the understanding that it is God who reveals and hides. I'm simply a communicator for him. And they rise up in persecution against me. It is simply persecution aimed at the God I serve. God's sovereign plan for hiding and revealing should motivate fearless proclamation of the gospel. 
It is your job to communicate the message clearly. It is God's work to determine the effect of that that message on the one hearing it. That should open up freedom for us as God's people in the kingdom mission. Finally, whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, one thing is crystal clear from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. The only appropriate response to Jesus Christ is worship. Period. Unbeliever, you must walk away from your idols that you worship to follow the one true living God. You must walk away from all of your agenda that you worship and worship Christ because he is Lord of heaven and earth delegated through the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that's going to happen That is the only appropriate response to Christ. Believer, you're here this morning. The Lordship of Jesus Christ ought to be crystal clear. He is worthy of our absolute surrender. What we sang this morning is the only appropriate song to sing. I surrender it all. My life is yours. You're the sovereign Lord. You are the one who reigns. My life is simply to bring you honor and glory Break down high places. Break down idols in my life so that I worship you with no competitors. So, we conclude with crystal clear information from our Lord. The indifferent ones, condemnation. The chosen ones, revelation. And we'll see next week, the desperate ones, rest. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I hope it changes and molds us to be more like our Savior. So that we bring Him more glory. Father, thank You for just a brief moment to examine this text. I am an insufficient vessel to communicate these kinds of truths. These are so beyond us. And in the awareness that we cannot explain them well we we can't think clearly about them we also acknowledge that you have revealed them to us and those things that you have revealed to us are for us so we desire to be affected by these truths we want to be affected by the theology of our lord jesus we acknowledge that you are lord of heaven and earth and that you alone choose to hide and reveal We acknowledge and confess that you have delegated all authority to your son. That he chooses whom he chooses according to his good pleasure. To reveal you to us. We are so grateful. We have been touched by your sovereign plan. We were running away from you and you rescued us. It was not fair. It was not fair what you did to your son. And so we bow before you in adoration for Your grace. Teach us to obey Your sovereign grace. Teach us to revel in our insufficiency to earn anything from You. 
so that we can rightly see Christ. We can see all of his glory at the cross. We can see the full weight of our sin. We can see the full weight of his righteousness. We can see the benefit of the transfer of the two. And we can mirror the character of you, Father, and the miracle of your grace working in us. We desire to be a people clearly set apart for you, not just people who call themselves Christians, but those who live under the lordship of Jesus Christ for the furtherance of his kingdom and for the glory of your name. This is our prayer. In that Savior's name we pray. Amen.